You're familiar with the passage I know in um, Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 1, Paul talks, or the writer, some think it's Paul, some think Peter, some think others. Um, but the writer of Hebrews talks to us and warns us about a sin that so easily besets us. Uh, and your desire this year as a student of Master's College to know God deep within your soul and to live out that knowledge in your life, uh, I hope that you are concerned and praying about and mindful of the fact that there are sins and probably, undoubtedly, a sin that is going to easily beset you. Um, as we turn to another New Testament book that Paul did write, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we find that Paul tells us that it is the manner of Satan to transform himself into an angel of light, to approach us and to present his life and his teaching in such a way that it appears on the surface to be right and attractive to all that we are and that all that we think and that all that we desire. So as we talk about the sin that's going to easily beset us this year as a student at the Master's College, I would suggest to you that one way that you really go about looking for that sin is to not look at the bad stuff. I mean, we typically would think that way. Well, maybe my sin is going to be pornography, or maybe my sin is going to be greed, maybe my sin is going to be anger, or maybe my sin is going to be uh, something else that's in one of the lists of vices in the New Testament. And while that may be true, I think that it is very likely that the sin is, that's going to distract you from pursuing God and the sin that will distract me is probably going to be a good thing, not a bad thing at all. And the reason that we know that that happens and occurs so commonly is because Satan uses the tactic of deception, the tactic of transforming himself into light as the, the main way to get God's people from glorifying God. Uh, another thing that Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is not only do we look for the good thing that's going to be our hindrance this year, but the essence of that hindrance is that it will distract us from Jesus Christ. In chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says, I am concerned that lest Satan, in the same way that he with craftiness and, and subtlety and deception led Eve away from the Lord, that he is going to work on you and distract you away from the simplicity and purity that's in Jesus Christ. So as we start this school year out, and as we talk about the great desire that swells up in our soul when we hear people like Ed sing, or we hear messages like John MacArthur gave last week on glorifying God and pursuing God, one of the things that we must be mindful of is that sin that is so easily besets us and distracts us and hinders us from that pursuit. And I just want right up front to say that probably the place that you should look for that is in something that is good and something that is taking you away from a love for Jesus Christ. Because that is going to be the most common way that Satan is going to work in your life. Now, that brings me to really the point of my... It's kind of a devotional this morning. It's not really a message. And it's the subject of what I want to share with you from my heart is really a subject I, I've never talked about in chapel. In fact, it's probably not a, a great topic to talk about as an administrator who gets his paycheck from the Master's College. And this is the title. The Greatest Hindrance your spiritual growth this year may well be the Master's College. The greatest hindrance to your spiritual growth this year may well be the fact that you chose to be a student at the Master's College. Now stop and think about it. It fits the criteria, doesn't it? It's a good thing, and I talk about that all the time. 
when your parents come during Wow Week, I talk about all the advantages of being a student at, the, at a Christian college in general and a student at the Master's College in particular. I talk to you about it. We talk to you about it. You read about it. We talk to you so much about it, you're tired of hearing it. This is a great place and a great place to be. And it's a good thing. And in reality, it is a good thing to be at any Christian college. And it's a great thing, I believe, to be at the Master's College. But that's what qualifies being here as that thing that may be what Satan may use to hinder you spiritually this year. Because it's a good thing. And Satan is always looking for good things to rob you of the best things. And it also qualifies because being a student at Master's College can easily, easily be that thing that distracts you away from the person of Jesus Christ. That's kind of odd because you would think that it would always do the opposite and it would never produce a, a coldness of spiritual life, but it really can't. I was a student at a Christian college for four years. I also went to a seminary for three years. And, and I know what it is like to be in a place that you would think on the surface would be the greatest advantage to spiritual growth when in fact it becomes the tool, the instrument that Satan uses to distract you away from Christ. And this is how that happens. There is a trap that you can fall into as a student here this year that is a trap that is so, so incredibly common at an institution where people live that exists for the primary purpose of teaching the Word of God and equipping others to teach and to know the Word of God. There is a trap that is just absolutely so much a part of who we are that it's almost impossible to avoid at some time during your four years or whatever length of time you spend at the Master's College. And here's the trap. Here's the trap. And that trap is that we can love the Bible. Now listen to this. That we can love the Bible more than we can love the author of the Bible, Jesus Christ. You are a student at in an institution that exists for the purpose of teaching the Bible. You're in an institution that exists for the purpose of training others to teach the Bible. And those are good things. Those are great things. Those are reasons enough to have this place. Honorable things. But they're also the things that can be the very trap that you fall into that distracts you away from your personal relationship with a personal Lord, Jesus Christ. It's easy to think, gang, and I know because I work here, not just have I attended a Christian college, but I work and have worked for years at a Christian college. It is easy to confuse knowing the Bible as being the same thing as knowing God. And they're not the same thing. Every day you are increasing in your knowledge of the Word of God. And it's very easy as you start out this year, whether you're a returning student or not, to think that that in and of itself defines what it means to be a person who is knowing God. That when Paul wrote with such eloquence and such passion about for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, when Paul said there is one thing that I desire above all other things, and that is to know Christ and the fellowship of his suffering, it is so easy for us to think that what Paul means by that is that I increase in my knowledge of what the text says. And that knowing the Bible and being able to regurgitate the truths of the Bible back to someone and to be able to memorize all this data is the same thing as actually knowing God. When Packer wrote his, his classic work, Knowing God, 
one of the first things that he says in the opening pages of that book is that there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And that's the distinction, really, that I'm trying to bring to you this morning, is that in an institution that is doing its best every day to help you know the Bible and to know about God, we want you to know that it's our concern for you and our prayer for you that you don't confuse knowing about God, knowing the Bible with knowing God. Those are not the same thing. Those things are not exactly equal in their spiritual truth. The other thing it's easy to do is to think that loving the Bible is the same thing as loving God. Part of it, it was for the Bible. Now, I don't know, I, I haven't really paid attention whether you guys do that now or have ever been taught that. But as a young Christian, I was very impressionable and I, I thought that was right. And I was greatly offended when I would go home and, and go to a church meeting and go into a youth group meeting and find a, someone putting another book on the Bible. And I just thought, that was how could you love the Bible and put another book on top of the Bible? You just can't do that. And it was easy for me as a, as a Christian in a Christian college to think that loving the Bible is the same thing as loving God. And it's not. It's not the same thing at all. It's also easy to think that reading the Bible is the same as hearing from God. And that's not necessarily the tr- truth at all. In fact, many of you, I think, are from the, what we would call the Bible Belt, from the Midwest and the South which is where I am from originally, where David Bosworth is from. And in my experience and in my background, and I went back to my home this summer and visited my family. My, a lot of my friends went to a high school reunion. And, and I was reminded of just how, how easy it is to think that these things are true. Because my family and my friends, so many of them know a lot about the Bible. They love the Bible. They read the Bible. But they have no personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And gang, it is going to be very easy for you to fall into that trap this year. And in a way, we're almost going to help you with that because we're going to put so much emphasis upon the text. And I think rightfully so. But I don't want you to slip into the false understanding of why we're doing that. In John chapter 5, a passage that you're very familiar with, I'm sure, you don't need to turn there. Just listen to these words as Christ is talking to the Pharisees. And he says to them, the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he has sent, him you do not believe. Now listen to what he says. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me but you're not willing to come to me that you may have eternal life. When you read through the Gospels and you find Christ responding to the Pharisees, what you find Christ acknowledging is this, that the Pharisees loved the Bible. The Pharisees knew the Bible. The Pharisees read the Bible. But you know and I know that the Pharisees neither knew God, loved God, nor heard God. They were students of the text. They were admirers of the text. They were exegetes of the text. But they were people who did not have a personal relationship with God. This summer, I, I spent a lot of time reading A.W. Tozer. and He is fast becoming one of my new heroes. Uh, the Pursuit of God and The Roots of Righteousness and, and several other books that I picked up this summer uh, that Tozer wrote years ago. And in one of his books, The Roots of Righteousness, Tozer talks about the distinction between a bibliocentric faith and a Christocentric faith. 
And what he does is he talks about in the church in his day that he ministers to, that he believes that that error is rampant. There is all this emphasis upon the text, but Christ is lost in the whole process. And then he goes on to talk about, uh, give an illustration of that by talking about the burning bush and, and Moses. Remember that in the Old Testament? And he says, what so many of us do is that we get so enamored with the bush and the fact that it is burning and how it's burning and why it's burning and we dissect it and we analyze it that we miss the whole point of the bush. And the point of the bush, Tozer goes on to say, is the presence of God in the bush. It is not the bush at all. It is the presence of the living and true God in the bush that is the point. And Tozer says the difference between a bibliocentric faith and a Christocentric faith is this that we must find in the Bible Jesus Christ. It leads us to communion and fellowship with the true and living God. Another author that I read this summer said this in a very similar way. He said, it would not easily be possible to be spiritual without knowledge of the Word, but it is a wholly different manner to be spiritual beyond the Word. In other words, he's saying this. You can't be someone who is pursuing God if you ignore what the Bible says and if you're someone who is not a student of the text. But it's easy, it's impossible rather, to be a person who is pursuing spiritual things and limit yourself to just what the text says. It is very possible to be that kind of person. To just say, well, all there is to spirituality is just knowing the, the text and being able to memorize the text and to get so caught up in the text that you lose the presence of Jesus Christ in it. The Bible is to come to our souls through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to witness of Jesus Christ. It is to draw us into communion with Jesus Christ. It is to bring us into a personal engagement and experience of Jesus Christ. And gang, don't forget that. Because while you can't be spiritual if you don't know the Bible, you can easily know the Bible and not be spiritual. You understand that? That's the trap. Just knowing the Bible does not make you a person who is walking with God. It was not true of the Pharisees. It is not true of the people in the Bible Belt. And it's not true of you. And that is so easily to fall, such an easy trap to fall into here at the Master's College. You say, Dave, okay, I don't want to fall into that trap. What, what will help me not do that? What will help me stay away from the, the fact that knowledge in and of itself is not spirituality? Knowledge of the text in and of itself is not communion and fellowship and intimacy with Jesus Christ. How do I fall, keep from falling into the trap of a bibliocentric faith and losing Jesus Christ in the presence of the bush? Well, I don't think it's that hard. I don't think it's that difficult at all because there's a part of the Christian life that is both the cause and effect of communion with God. And you know what that is? Prayer. It is prayer. One of the things that we need to be constantly called back to as a Christian community this year is to the, the spiritual discipline, the Christian experience of communion with God in prayer. It is amazing to me that when you read the Psalms and David would talk about God, that one of the things that always adjusted his perception of life and adjusted his, his perception of himself and adjusted his perception of even God was coming into the presence of God in prayer. In Psalm 27, verse 4, David talks about God 
how I long to find myself in your presence. And it is in your presence, he goes on to say, that I truly understand not just you, but me and the world that I live in. And that's where we must be this year. It is, it is in prayer that you're going to really find yourself either spiritually dry, spiritually distracted, or spiritually alive. It's not because prayer is some sort of magical pill that we take. It is because in prayer we have brought ourselves to that point where it is just us and God. It's not knowledge. It is not data. God is not to be impressed with what we have accumulated. It is just us and God. And it is in that setting that we have the opportunity for God to really reveal to us who we are in our walk and who we are before Him and who we are in the genuineness of our faith. Prayer is key. I mean, there's a lot of things you could say that we need on this campus. You could say, well, if there's one need that the Master's College has, it would be the need for, spirit, for sexual purity. We could just stay sexually pure all year. Or maybe the great need that we have is small groups. And if we could just have small groups, that would be a great thing. Or maybe the great need that we have is expository preaching in chapel. If we just had that, it would be a great thing. Or maybe our need is that we just have great Bible classes, and that would be it. That would be the one need that we have. Or maybe it's memorizing Scripture. Or maybe it's being involved in ministry. And while all those things are good, and all those things are stuff that we should be a part of, I would suggest to you that the one thing that we need this year is to be a people that are involved in prayer. Because time and time again, you find in the New and Old Testament that God changes people's hearts in prayer. And time and time again, you find that God has chosen prayer as that appointed means through which he distributes his blessings. I was really rebuked by reading the, the life of Spurgeon this summer. I haven't finished yet. I mean, there's, there's so much written on his life and there's several different authors and versions of his biography. But one thing that he talks about is why it is, and this is what everybody wants to know, why did God choose to move in such a powerful way through that man and that church and at that time? And everybody's looking for the technique, right? I mean, that makes sense. Let's find that thing that we can package and reproduce and sell, maybe, and hold a seminar on. And what Spurgeon himself says is that there is really only one answer to why it is that God did what he did in my church and in my life. And it's prayer. Do you know that Spurgeon called his church to daily prayer? And that every single day at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., his people were praying at the church? And do you know that on average, 3,000 people would show up for that? That's astounding. Another book that I'm still working through right now is Ian Murray's book, Revival and Revivalism, which is sort of a parallel to the life of Spurgeon. And, and he is taking that period of time from 1740 to 1858, which we talk about, we refer to as the, as the Great Awakening in the United States, the spiritual awakening, where there was just a, a unique and concentrated movement of the Spirit, spirit of God. And Ian Murray, who is reformed and is a very conservative man, says that the same thing that we've read about Spurgeon, and that is that everybody looks for the trick, the magic, the pill, the technique. And Ian Murray says there isn't a pill, there isn't a magic, there isn't a technique. There's only one thing that you will find that is the explanation for the supernatural, powerful, life-changing moving of God among a people, and that is prayer. And it's prayer. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 talked about in many different ways the sovereignty of God and how God had sovereignly brought him into times of suffering and trial to use Paul to help and encourage others through that. 
Paul talked about how God had sovereignly provided for him in all kinds of persecution. Paul talked about how he was convinced that God stood above and independent of the world that we live in, and yet at the same time is intimately involved in that world. I mean, he, he spoke often of God's sovereignty and His greatness. But as he was moving his way through that discussion in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, as he does other places, he also says, and I ask you to continue with me in prayer, that through your prayers you may assist me in my ministry. You go to Ephesians chapter 6, and the last part of that passage in verses 19 and 20, Paul says the same thing. Join with me in this spiritual warfare of prayer. In Romans chapter 15 or 16, I can't remember where it is, Paul also says the same thing. I ask that you would join with me, striving for God in prayer. Time and time again, Paul says, prayer isn't just an introduction to ministry. Prayer is spiritual ministry. That is our ministry. And while Paul believed deeply in the sovereignty of God, and he lived upon the foundation of those truths. Paul also wrote and talked frequently about how prayer was that sovereignly appointed means through which God distributes his blessings. I don't understand all that. How can God be sovereign and yet at the same time our prayers have an impact? I don't, I don't know how that works. But Paul believed that and was constantly thanking people for praying for him and acknowledging that their prayers opened doors for him. Gang, I think we need to be a people of prayer. If we're to stop this tendency to think that just knowledge in and of itself is relationship with Christ, if we're to avoid spiritual dryness, if we're to stop and desist and to move away from just lifelessness and powerlessness as a student body. Prayer has got to be our commitment. And that has got to be your commitment as a person, as an individual, and our commitment as a college. And I think that you would find it, I think, probably a standard thing that if you ask people, why don't you pray? And I kind of did that yesterday and today just casually as I passed people. Why don't you pray? Why do you struggle praying? They gave me a lot of answers. But I think that in all the answers I heard, there was one common theme. And it had to do with our thoughts about God. And one of the reasons that I believe that we do fail to pray is that we have very inadequate thoughts about God. Because when the Spirit of God really takes the truth of His Word and illumines our hearts with that truth and helps us to understand the true greatness and the majesty of our Sovereign Lord and how love is not just something He does, but it's His very nature and how that mercy and grace aren't just things that He turns on and off but are the very essence of His attribute, then it calls us very naturally into prayer. Because prayer is an act of dependence. And I think it's very telling that in the New Testament, the word for prayer sometimes is the same word for praise or thankfulness or gratitude and even rejoicing. Because what prayer really is, it's the act of a dependent person to a great God. Right? It is. Why don't you pray? The same reason I don't pray. Because we have inadequate thoughts about God. And our thoughts about ourselves are too lofty.
we need to be a people of prayer. Not because it's neat, not because the Bible just says so, but because, like Ed sang this morning, because deep within our soul, we want to know God. I know that's who you are. If the seed of God dwells within you, if you're born again, I know that no matter how messed up your life gets, deep within your soul, there is really only one central desire, and that's to know God. And I want you to respond to that desire. Act upon that desire. Let God direct you with that desire and be people of prayer. I'd like to do that. One of the things that we don't do in chapel is that we, we exhort you, but we don't give you an opportunity to practically go beyond the exhortation. And I'd like to do two things right now as we close chapel. I've exhorted you on the, the centrality of prayer I've exhorted you on the distinction between bibliocentric and Christocentric faith. Now what I'd like to do is two things. One, I, there's a slide coming up behind me. And I just want to give you some very practical hints on prayer. Um, lessons from the school of prayer. And, I, and I'd just like to share these with you. I, I grabbed these from some, some of the reading I did this summer, and I would like you just to write them down. Because they're very practical. And they'll help us become a person and a people of prayer. Number one as the guys bring it up behind me. Much praying is not done because we do not plan to pray. That's, it's that simple. If you look at your day timer and you fill in all the things that are there, one of the things that most often we leave out or we, or we scooch out when need be because our time gets occupied is prayer. And I just want to exhort you to, to put in your life a planned time to be with God. Whether you want to call it devotional time, a quiet time, a God and I time, they say at camp, whatever you want to call it. Not because it's a, a magical pill, but because who you are is a person that loves God. And because you love God, you want to put it in your day to be with God. Not just throughout the day as you busy yourself with all the activities of the day and inside your heart you're continuing to think and to love and to, and to ponder upon the truth of God, but actually put it into your schedule, a time of devotion. You need to do that. And you need to do it right now and stay faithful to it. Secondly, adopt practical ways to impede mental drift. I don't know if you have that problem, but I have that problem. It's just like as soon as I get on my knees and find a time when it, that is quiet, the very next thing I have to contend with is all these thought arrows that come crashing into my mind from all over the place. Do you have to deal with that? I mean, you got this. I mean, where did that thought come from? Why all of a sudden, I was doing that the other day. I was praying and all of a sudden I realized that that I'd taken videotapes back to the wrong store. I mean, where did that thought come from? And why did I remember it now? It was totally unrelated to what I was praying about, and I just, just remembered it. I don't know why I remembered it. It was a distraction. And I put some things under there. Did you guys add that? Vocalize your prayers. One of the things that I did in college, and I think, and I do now, and I think will help you, but you just got to be a little careful because you don't want people to think you're nuts, is that I would walk and pray, or I would drive and pray, or I would ride a bike and pray. Now, there's varying degrees of safety in those activities. But it's very helpful to find a place where you can vocalize your prayers. In other words, to just speak them out loud. And I used to do that all the time. I did, don't do it as much walking now as I do driving, but I would just talk out loud. The other day, I was driving, coming home in the car, and I was just talking to the Lord out loud. And I know people at the light think that you're, you know, what? And they're looking for somebody, maybe a midget in my car that I'm talking to. But find a place where you can do that. Another thing you can do is to pray over Scripture. To go slowly and meditatively through a text. 
so slowly and so meditatively that you, you move from the Word to prayer and from prayer to the Word, back and forth, back and forth. To begin in the Psalms, to take Proverbs and to read a different proverb of the day of the month, really, whatever it is that you're doing in your Scripture reading program, to do it in such a way that it moves back and forth from reading to prayer. That's a very helpful way to do that. And you'll start finding that the Scripture itself will find its way into your prayer. You will actually, you'll actually verbalize truth as you pray, which is, which is very helpful. Another thing that you should do is cultivate the habit of journaling. And if there is one weakness I have in my life that I wish that I could just finally and completely change, it would be my struggle with this myself. It is so helpful to reflective thought, to deep, serious thought to keep a journal. Have you ever read Jim Elliott's journals? Man, you need to do that. You know that he started a journal right after a chapel just like this when he was a student, a sophomore at Wheaton College? A chapel speaker got up and talked about the value of journaling, and Jim Elliott decided, I'm going to do that. Now, when you read his journal, he didn't do it every single day. He faltered here and there. But when you read them, you can see how that God used that time to really work on his soul. I mean, it's just an incredible thing. At 19 years of age, the things that Jim Elliott wrote in his journals about his walk with God are nothing short of profound. I mean, it's just... And he talks about how that he would go back to previous days and weeks and how that God would use that journal to lead him on to his faith. I really want to encourage you to that. I wish that we could just require that of all of us, that the one thing that we do as a student at a Christian college is to keep a journal. It'd just be very, very helpful. Another thing that we can do, uh, well, the reason for a journal is it slows you down. You keep a journal because it'll keep you from approaching devotions like a fast food restaurant. You take a quick order, you get a few things on your plate, and you move on. A journal will slow you down and get your thoughts off of the vanities of everyday life and the distractions of all this stuff to get, getting your thoughts on God. Another reason for a journal is that it fosters self-examination, as I already mentioned. And if you don't, I mean, it would really be helpful if you've never kept a journal to read Jim Elliott's journal, uh, to see what he put in there. It's, it's very valuable. Uh, it also ensures focused articulation. In other words, when you go to pray, if you put your prayers in that journal, it really helps you think seriously what it is that you're going to a holy God to request, or why it is that you're interceding, and who you're interceding for. It gives you a focused thought process. Next, number four, develop, if possible, a prayer partner. This summer, I led a Bible study, 82 men. We met every single week for 14, 15 weeks at 5.30 in the morning. And, and in that process, one of the things that we did is we had our spouses as our prayer partner. While the men got together at 5.30 in the morning and we met and studied the Word of God, our wives were committed to get up at that same time frame and pray for us. We had prayer partners. It was a part of the deal. If you're going to be in this Bible study, your wife has got to be in it too by being up at the, that same hour praying for, your, for her husband. It was astounding the impact that just that had. The, the advantage and the benefit that was to marriages, it was incredible. We never even, I never even thought about that, just how powerful that would be. And husbands and wives talking about how the Lord used just the prayer time to really change their relationship. And I would encourage you to that. Get a prayer partner, someone you can pray with, someone that you can come and talk to and ask requests of and, and can hold you accountable in your prayer life. Also, devise a prayerless system. 
I mean, most of you carry either, a, I mean, if you're going to survive in college, you almost have to carry a daytimer or some sort of time management instrument. Or if nothing else, you carry that student handbook that we give you that has the master calendar and all that stuff that's in there. I mean, I don't know how you could survive without some sort of instrument with you all the time because of all the things that you've got to do and the variety of places and times and what have you. So what you can add to that, right into your little journal or into your little day timer or day runner or Franklin, whatever it is that you use, is a little prayer list. Devise a, a way to maintain a prayer list. Also, mingle, praise, confession, intercession, but when you intercede, try to tie as many requests as possible to the Scripture. Uh, there's a book that's written by Donald Carson that's on the prayers of Paul. And he goes through this book and he talks about the different types of prayer that you find in the New Testament. Sometimes prayer is just nothing but praise. And that is frequently true of Paul. You find him just in the middle of talking about God, just breaking into a spontaneous time of, of praise and thanksgiving. And sometimes that's all you need to do, is to just go to God in prayer and just do nothing but respond to his person, to his grace as you've experienced it in your life, or as you've witnessed experience in other people's lives. You ever notice how often Paul does that? As he opens the book of Philippians, he says, you know, I see how God has worked in your life and how he has changed you and how he has brought about faith and hope and love. And Paul says, and, and because of this, I pray. He does the same thing to the Thessalonican church. He does the same thing in the book of Ephesians. I mean, he sees God working among his friends and he, it's a cause for him to give praise to God. Do you ever do that? Just thank God, not because of what he's doing in your life necessarily, but because of what he's doing in someone else's life. Did you do that last week when John was finishing with finished his three-part series? And to really be struck by the greatness and the glory of God and to just thank God for the activity of His grace in the life of our president. I mean, I'm so thankful for that. And to just use that as an occasion for prayer. Confession, which speaks for itself and is so much a part of our prayer life. And, and intercession as we pray for others and intercede for them and to tie as much as possible to prayer, to always have with you as much as possible your Bible with you when you're praying, as I've said before, moving back and forth. And is there another one up there, number seven, or is that it? Is that it? That's it. Just some practical hints. One of the things that, that we really want to call you to this year is to this issue of prayer. And we want you to call us to it. Gang, it is, it is central to our relationship with God. It is that appointed means through which God has chosen to distribute His blessing. And if you really and truly have been gripped with the greatness of God and the weakness of your own flesh, I think prayer will become more and more of a normal reality of our lives. Let's stand together as we close the meeting to address our holy God. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for who you are. And Lord, we, we love you. And Lord, even though we articulate those words, we are at the same time so rebuked by the littleness and shallowness of our love. God, if, if we really are people who understand your greatness, your majesty, your awesomeness, and that knowledge gives us a greater insight into our own weakness. God, we know that we will find ourselves more and more 
often in prayer. So Lord, help us to learn how to pray as your disciples asked Christ. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us about you that we may be called to prayer. Lord, teach us about ourselves and our limitations and our inabilities that we may find ourselves calling upon you in prayer. God, it's our desire this year that we know you in a personal and living way. And God, we just are so aware that prayer is going to be a very big part of that. And it's in your Son's name we come to you as you've asked us to this morning. Amen. You're dismissed.